The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi FM. Seth Fransman, he is a writer and columnist, uh, and I think even features editor at uh, the Jerusalem Post. And uh, he's been writing a lot of interesting stuff lately about what is going on in Israel on various topics. So we thought we would get him on the line to chat about it. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being with us on the New Blue Review. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, Seth, of course, uh, has actually been to South Africa before, so he knows a little bit about the community and the place, which is also very, very nice. Seth, lots going on in Israel at the moment, uh, but you have been particularly vocal on a couple of issues, uh, especially this one of the new Polish law, uh, sort of yeah. banning uh, views that uh, with Polish collaborators during the Holocaust, etc. And you've written a piece uh, recently, which I think probably pushed against the mainstream of Jewish uh, writing on this just after the law was enacted, uh, saying that you thought that the that the Poles kind of got a bit of a raw deal uh, in the historical discussion of the Holocaust. Uh, what prompted you to write this article in the first place? Well, I saw when they, when they started to discuss about this law, which I think has actually been proposed before, but basically there was a whole bunch of inflammatory comments in Israel by several politicians, including Yair Lapid, where they basically said, you know, these Polish government is trying to lecture us and dictate to us the history of the Holocaust. But, you know, we as Jews know better. And, you know, the, the Poles were sort of involved in the Holocaust or collaborators or that the Germans built concentration and death camps there because the Poles were kind of uh, willing to accept that. So and this led I saw on social media, especially in English language, kind of Jewish Jews, Jewish people on uh, Facebook and, and Twitter saying, yeah, you know, the Poles were worse than the Germans. The Poles are worse than Hitler. And and I was like, I don't understand. Did I wake up in like a bizarre world in which the world is upside down? I mean, obviously, say what you will about some individual Polish people or anti-Semitism in Poland, but Poland was one of the countries that resisted Nazism, unlike uh, France or Hungary or Croatia or many countries like Norway that, that uh, had a collaborationist government. You know, Poland was a country in which hundreds of thousands, actually millions of non-Jewish Poles were killed by the Nazis. Uh, and they were a very uh, heroic resistance. So, And I've read books about that, and it doesn't, that doesn't mean that there isn't anti-Semitism. Just I was thinking, okay, it kind of needs to set the record straight a little bit and ask some questions, and maybe people, are, maybe people have a stereotype about history that, or a warped view that isn't always accurate. Well, certainly uh, I think that you, not maybe amongst the academia, but you'll often hear people referring to the Polish death caps, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, which is kind of incorrect if you think about it because there were, there was, it was German death camps in Poland, uh, which I think could, you could say uh, was probably a, uh, you know, is something which the Poles might feel a little bit upset about. But my perspective from reading your articles and other people who have been talking about this since then is that there seems to have been a conflation with uh, – anti-Semitism in Poland and the fact that Jews were killed even after uh, the Nazi uh, camps uh, in Poland and pogroms in the run-up to the war and the actual uh, the actual Holocaust itself uh, and, and, the, and the role of the Germans on, on Polish soil. And there seems to have been this sort of conflation of views where people saying, well, we didn't really like the Poles uh, and sort of conflating it with the Nazi war machine. Right. I think um, 
I think that's right. And basically, the uh, huh. it, it's. I think it, it just. It's. It seems to be a problem in history that we perhaps the way Holocaust is sometimes taught or the way people tell you about it. I remember reading books as a kid, like the, the cartoon graphic novel Maus, which is about a Polish Jew. And he depicts the Poles as uh, as pigs and as a character. They all look like pigs. And all of the Germans look like cats. I think that somehow, you know, we tend to have an idea of Germany as a civilized country and that the Nazism is something that's kind of bizarre and odd that came along and then kind of left. And that's why, for instance, many Israelis uh, live in Germany today and it's kind of considered once again a positive country. And somehow Poland is therefore considered a country that is just irredeemably bad. And so I think it just has to do sometimes with, I think, that how how history is taught. I mean, France obviously puts it, has a great narrative as a country that has a history of, of, of being a center of civilization and such things. So maybe sometimes it's harder to accept the fact that it's also a country that has the same type of deep-rooted anti-Semitism and that in many Western European countries – um, you know, Jews up until recently were were either expelled from many places or restricted to certain jobs or and all those types of things. There's a reason that there were more Jews in Eastern Europe. I don't think it's just that they all like to live there. I think it's that say what you will about those countries uh, and the anti-Semitism there, but apparently they were slightly more tolerant than many parts of Western Europe. So do you also think that it might have something to do with the way that countries dealt with their past uh, sort of post the Holocaust. I mean, obviously we have, uh, you know, the, what the Germans did and, and nobody, you know, has forgotten that. But you do kind of get the sense that the Germans take their role in the Holocaust fairly seriously. You can go there and you can see the museums and, and whatever, you know, and, and German scholars and, and diplomats are quite, uh, you know, sort of serious about what their role was and how that shapes their policy towards Israel and Jews, etc. Uh, do you think that perhaps other parts of Europe, uh, Poland included, maybe haven't quite come to terms uh, with their past, maybe because it was in some ways more complicated, because the Poles were also seen as enemies of the Germans, uh, but they also had this anti-Semitic background, that, that perhaps part of the reason why uh, we as Jews have this view of them is because there's a reluctance on their part to engage with some of the difficult parts of, of, of that history. Yeah, I think basically what happens in a lot of Eastern European countries is is their narrative of history goes like this. Um, they were they were they had some sort of a country that was dominated at some point by the Russian and Austro-Hungarian and German empires. Many of these countries, like Poland or Latvia or Lithuania or Ukraine, were living under the boot of these other empires. All of a sudden, you get to something like the 1920s or so after the First World War. Many of these countries enjoy a brief bit of freedom, but then, of course, you know, fast forward, and all of a sudden, you've got the Nazis and the communists or the Stalinists, all of a sudden returning and taking these countries over and subjecting them to extreme brutality so that in Ukraine you have a famine that kills millions of people. In Poland you have uh, millions killed by the Germans, and then after the war uh, also, of course, the Soviet suppression. So from their point of view, the Holocaust is not the main thing. It's a piece of this terrible history that goes on for most of the 20th century. So... That leads them, you know, to talk about in certain some countries about 
well, the communist crimes were like the Nazi crimes. Well, in terms of the death count among the local people, sometimes that's accurate in a place like Ukraine. Of course, as a Jewish person, you say, yeah, but that's not fair because actually the Holocaust is more important. Uh, and of course, these countries would like to whitewash their anti-Semitic history. Of course, they have problems sometimes with it. In some countries, there are guys who resisted uh, the Soviets, collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, and those people, and they say, yeah, but is, this guy's actually resisting Stalin. So his other role as sort of a collaborator with fascism, well, that's kind of a way to whitewash that. That's not the case in Poland, but that could be the case in some of these other countries. So, yeah, I think that their history is certainly complex, but you know, their history was dictated to them until the 1980s, right? Until 1990 or so, until the Cold War ended. So they've had, what, 20, 30 years to try to kind of um, cycle through this and work through it. Whereas the Germans, as you said, they made this very nice choice in 1947 you know, or so to be like, yeah, well, okay, we're sorry for the show. But I think that um, it's nice. It's one thing to say that you're sorry for the Holocaust or to teach, teach things about it. But you can never make up for the fact that you've murdered six million people. And I think, therefore, it's an essential difference with a, with a country that didn't murder people, with a country that didn't collaborate. I guess that's how I would kind of put it. And, and, and I think a lot of other countries oh, – so it sounds like there's a phone in the background there, Seth. Um, yeah, a lot of other countries um, – uh, often say that there were Jews amongst the communists, uh, that that or the Stalinists rather, that eventually uh, uh, you know invaded those countries, and often they tend to blame the Jewish people uh, for that as well, which I think is an extra layer which perhaps people uh, don't really know about. And often you have these people, uh, you know, Jewish communists being celebrated as some kind of heroes, uh, where you know where so they supported this this basically evil empire of of the Stalinists. So it's a, a very interesting uh, history which uh, gets unpacked. The question is, where do we go from here? I mean, whatever people's view of history is, I'm not sure that a law trying to outlaw, outlaw Poland's dis discussion and role in the Holocaust is going to be particularly helpful. And it does seem to have opened up some old wounds, whereas up till now, Poland and Israel had, despite all of this history, actually, I think, found some common ground. Yeah, look, I think that's the key point. I mean, it's one thing to disagree with people on Facebook, you know, saying things about, about Poland and things, but that doesn't mean one has to support the law. I think that that actually is something that people that deal with Israel have to deal with a lot, which is okay. I may disagree with something that the Israeli government has done, but that doesn't mean that I dislike Israel or something like that. So, of course, the, the law, you can't legislate lots of things. You can't legislate morality. You can't really legislate history. I think the best thing, obviously, too, is to encourage you know, a better education or whatever. So the law is bad. Uh, in terms of Israel-Polish relations, I get the feeling that, you know, Israel probably needs Poland more than Poland needs Israel. I mean, is, in the end of the day, Israel needs Polish support at the UN and things like that. And Israel has very, very, very good relations with this Eastern European group of block of countries called the Visegrad Group. Um, so these are kind of Israel's friends in Europe. So I would I would think that the is Israeli government would be smart and pragmatic enough not to go crazy and, you know, decide to expel the Polish ambassador or something. I think that they, they've basically done enough. Bibi or Netanyahu has criticized Poland. The education minister has criticized them. Yair Lapid has criticized them. Okay, everyone's kind of got their little five minutes in front of the video. And I assume things will kind of go back to normal. Interesting, interesting. Now, talking, uh, uh, shifting a little bit uh, on, on this topic, Seth, um, of of people and controversial issues and in, in, in Israel and what you can and can't legislate, you you've been quite vocal on this issue of 
um, of, of, of immigrants in Israel and what's going on. And I think it's going to become a big issue um, in the next uh, in the next uh, month or two as, as Israel starts to look at this uh, issue of the migrants. Uh, we Actually, I see we, we need to take a short break. When we come back, I'd like to chat to you about what your views are about what that process is all about. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. And uh, you're back with the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, uh, and we're chatting live to Seth Fransman. If you want to ask Seth any questions, you can WhatsApp us on 0618951019 or um, SMS us 34519 or even uh, tweet us at High and uh, we'll be happy to take any of your questions. Just before the break, Seth, uh, we were talking about the issue of immigrants in uh, Israel, African immigrants in particular, and uh, the Israeli government uh, now saying that they will pay immigrants to leave, uh, leave the country. And this has stirred up a whole range of different uh, sectors of the society. Maybe give us some background on, on this issue and where it came from. Um, so I think about 10 years ago or so, Israel became part of this overall kind of uh, global migration wave that has happened in which people from uh, Central Africa have begun to go through North Africa to get to Europe. Some of those people, especially from Eritrea and Sudan, were lured to the Sinai Desert by Bedouin smugglers who then raped and systematically tortured them in order to get money from people that already had no money. The smugglers then dumped these poor people on the border with Israel, and many of these people crawled across. At the time, there was no fence, so it was relatively easy to get into Israel, and that was a major smuggling route anyway for drugs and weapons and things. Several years later, I think in 2012 or 13 or so, Israel finally completed a large fence along the Negev Desert with Sinai in Egypt. And that fence cut the number of people coming from a thousand a month or so to basically one or two or zero. Um, so what we ended up with in Israel was something like 70,000 or 60,000 of these asylum seekers, refugees, migrants, call them what you will. And that has become a major issue in Israel. First of all, it's an issue for the people that suffer because of them, because the many of these people, because they're undocumented and because the Israeli government didn't bother to really process them, like many countries, <laughs> these people ended up drifting towards the poorest areas in Israeli society, which is tended to be South Tel Aviv around the bus station. So that became a huge burden for the other for the Israeli citizens that lived there. And there were a series of rallies and things against the migrants, which were then in the media's portrayal, you know, a bunch of Israeli racists attacking these poor, innocent uh, refugees. Then you had inflammatory comments from right-wing politicians basically calling them infiltrators and a cancer and all sorts of things. And so the government decided at some point to kind of, okay, we're going to have to deal with this. Let's try to deport them all. Well, we can't deport them back to Eritrea or whatever because that's a country um, that is considered, you know, some sort of human rights uh, abuser. So let's try to just deport them somewhere else in Africa. And you know, the thing is, there's a lot of misinformation about in terms of international law, what you can and can't do. In terms of international law, people are allowed to go to a third country because these people have already traveled through one or two countries to get to Israel. So it's not that it's wrong or necessarily immoral, for instance, for to take someone who's in Israel and find him refugee status or asylum in another country. So, for instance, thousands of them have moved to Canada 
uh, or or Western countries. And that's a good thing. But uh, the question is, of course, if they don't want to go back to Africa and you're sending them to a place like Rwanda, uh, maybe that seems like an abuse. Um, but, you know, does refuge, does being claiming that you're a refugee give you a ticket to live anywhere you want in the world? And if that country happens to be Israel, does that give you necessarily a right to live there? So it's not always clear, you know, kind of what the right and the wrong is. That That's kind of the background, I think. Now, one of the big issues has also been – you know, obviously, this is part of a broader uh, migrant and asylum seeker issue that is affecting Europe and uh, large chunks of the world uh, in general. Uh, and uh, a lot of people immediately sort of go back to Jewish history and say, oh, Jews were refugees and you know, in many places, and we should be more sensitive to this issue. And it doesn't seem as though the Israeli government has actually put in any uh, laws, as you say, to process people so that their status can be adequately uh, dealt with whether they are in fact economic migrants or asylum seekers or, or, or something. Uh, do you think that the Israeli government itself has uh, kind of reacted with the right kind of policy thinking to deal with this uh, problem? Um, I, I would say you know several things. First of all, the concept that because you're a country or a people that suffered, that therefore you have to take in all sorts of other suffering people, I think is kind of illogical. I think actually the countries that did the abusing, like Nazi Germany, are the countries that should be taking in refugees. The fact that the Jewish people suffered throughout history, uh, of course, it doesn't. that means Jewish people, of course, shouldn't do wrong to other people. But I don't know why Israel has some special burden to take in refugees. I would think actually the countries that supported Nazism would be the first countries that should take in people because they're actually the abusers. I think that basically Israel as a country, it has the same rights and responsibilities as other countries. I, I think this kind of self-righteous attitude that somehow Jews have some special um, need to fix the world or be a light under the nations, I think is kind of a mischaracterization uh, of the history of the Jewish people. And I think in general, you know, it's not possible to fix the entire world. Israel is a small country. So Israel, as a, as a small country, it should take in a small number of people um, similar to the numbers that are being taken in some other countries. So maybe that's not 40,000 or 80,000 people. By the way, 80,000 people is a lot for a country of 8, 8 million. But, you know, that doesn't mean I think that the government, the government has dropped the ball. The government basically hasn't done anything. What they should have done is taken the worst cases amongst these people who are really – the the most in need in terms of families or people that fled Darfur or something like that, then that could have been several thousand people or something like that. And they could have found all sorts of solutions to house them in their own community. Israel's very good at building all sorts of communal kibbutz type of structures. They could have found all sorts of solutions for these people. They basically didn't bother. And uh, and there is a kind of racism that sits below the surface in terms of a dislike of these people. So I think they kind of they kind of made a huge mistake there. I think another place that the government and also many of the activists made a mistake is that they never bothered to look for an effective solution. And I mentioned the fact that some of these people successfully moved to Canada. So if there was a way to get them asylum in Western countries, why didn't the activists and other people who spend millions of dollars uh, to give to Israel every year, why didn't they just bother to survey these people and ask the people, what do you want? Because some of the Eritreans have relatives in Europe anyway. So maybe they don't want to live in Israel. Maybe they're just stuck here. Why not say, okay, if you'd like to move to England – we're going to try to facilitate that through donations, through trying to get you on a refugee track there. 
I would have think that Israel, which has lots of friends in the world and which has lots of uh, supporters in the diaspora, could have mobilized the people in the diaspora to try to find homes for some of these people in wealthy Western countries that have the resources to take them in or mobilize those people to help fund some sort of um, some sort of a way in which some of these people could integrate into Israeli society. Instead, what's been done is that these people for instance, where they live in South Tel Aviv, they've been put in segregated schools for migrants. I mean, that's kind of insane. That just perpetuates a social problem uh, and leaves lots of people uh, in limbo, which is not what I would have wanted for my ancestors. So that is where I think you could say in terms of our own history and say, okay, wait, when my great-grandfather grandfather decided to move to America, or in South Africa's case, obviously, from maybe Lithuania to South Africa, would they have wanted to live for uh, a, a generation as an undocumented worker? Well, obviously not. So most people would like to find some sort of way in order to standardize their life and integrate. And I think that that's kind of, that's kind of where the government could have done a much better job. Mm, absolutely uh, Interesting and uh, fascinating point of view Seth, uh, just about out of time For today uh, But thank you for coming on Where can people read your stuff? So mostly the Jerusalem Post But if you're interested in my Middle East analysis You can check it out at the National Interest uh, Or at the Hill Or the Spectator in England I, I write for a series of other publications sometimes But basically uh, check out the Jerusalem Post Or f- follow me on Facebook or on Twitter well, there you go. Seth Franceman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. He's there from uh, the, the Jerusalem Post giving us some perspective on uh, key issues facing Israeli society.